Good morning to each of you. Today we are going to finish, complete our study of Romans chapter 15. So I invite you to turn with me to that portion of God's Word again, Romans chapter 15. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the name S. Lewis Johnson. He, uh, he ministered in these parts, Dallas to be exact, uh, for several uh, decades. Believer's Chapel, I think maybe in Dallas, is that what it's called? Well, yeah, there we go. And um, quite the man, he's with the Lord now. But uh, I recall uh, something he wrote years ago. He was reflecting on a man whom he knew. I can't remember, I can't recall in what context, but a man who died, seemingly died in poverty. Uh, the man lived in a home that was falling down, dilapidated. And he wore the same clothes every day, disheveled, just looked poverty-stricken. And that was everyone's assumption until the relatives began to go through the home uh, after this gentleman's death and discovered almost $70,000 cash hidden, stored in jars and cans uh, throughout the, roof, the room, uh, the house, and also discovered, I think it was over 30 containers, boxes full of new shoes and new clothes. And yet, for, from all appearances, a man who was poverty-stricken. And as Lewis Johnson, reflecting on uh, that friend's life, I said the following, uh, there's a man who had a lot but didn't know how to use it. There's a man who had a lot but didn't know how to use it. And then Johnson applies it to us as the people of God. We have a lot, spiritually speaking. Sadly, some of us don't know how to use it. Uh, I think when I hear those words, it's challenging on many levels in many ways. I think in particular of the gift of prayer, uh, that in prayer we have a lot, uh, so much given to us. Sadly, many of us struggle to know how to, how to use it. Well, in the verses we're going to consider today, Paul touches on this great theme of prayer. My goal in drawing out from the text uh, what Paul says, what he writes, is really to convey to us, impress upon us, yes, on the one hand, just how great this privilege of prayer is. On the other hand, I hope by God's Spirit to convey some helpful insights as to how we can be, ought to be, men and women of prayer. I know what some of you are thinking. It's often what I think when I hear a sermon on prayer. I think the following, here we go. I'm about to walk out of here with two black eyes. Uh, I'm going to feel even more miserable than I did coming in because I know I struggle with prayer. I know I don't pray as I ought. And the last thing I need is some preacher reminding me of that fact, the obvious. Well, I just reminded you of it, so there it is. But I certainly hope to be far more encouraging this morning and give us, give me, give you uh, four words of encouragement and that I pray the Spirit of God will take to help us, yes, address what is a problem, a perennial problem, uh, let's face it, and to make us men and women of prayer, cultivate in us a spirit and attitude of prayer. Before we get to the text, which really it begins in verse 30 toward the end of the chapter, let me just remind you of the larger context that is beginning really in chapter 15, verse 14, where Paul embarks on his conclusion. He's about to wrap 
this letter up, isn't he? It's a long one. Uh, it's a lengthy one. He's covered a lot of ground in explaining the gospel, covered a lot of ground in applying the gospel, giving a series of commandments. And now finally, in chapter 15, verse 14, he's drawing it all to a conclusion. And the first thing he does, if you've been here for the past few weeks, you'll remember that in verse 15, he kind of offers a word of apology. He says, look, I've written to you on some points very boldly. In other words, I've got right up in your face, and I've said some things that perhaps might be a little offensive, and I'm worried that maybe I've given you the wrong impression. And so let me just clear up any misgivings here, and let me do so first of all by acknowledging your maturity. He does that in the 14th verse, chapter 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Notice the threefold description. Now you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And so there you have this tremendous description of this church in Rome by which Paul seeks to lay to rest any misunderstanding when it comes to just how boldly he has written on some points. The second thing he points to is his own ministry. And he reminds them, look, I've written in this way and I've explained the gospel as I've explained it and I've given you all these commandments as I've given them because after all, I'm just fulfilling my ministry as an apostle. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ called by God anointed by the Spirit of God, and all I'm trying to do is fulfill my ministry. Having mentioned his ministry, he goes on to describe it, basically giving us two points. He speaks firstly in verses 17, 18, 19 of the success of his ministry. And he says, I have fulfilled my ministry. God has not called me to preach on another man's foundation. God has called me to proclaim Christ where he has not yet been proclaimed, and I have done that. I have fulfilled my ministry from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, basically the modern-day Balkans. I have preached the gospel. I have seen converts. I have established churches, and I've appointed elders. And so my ministry has been successful, and therefore I am boasting in Christ. That is what Christ has accomplished through me by the Spirit of God. So he speaks of his success, the success of his ministry. And secondly, he mentions the strategy behind his ministry, that having proclaimed the gospel in the Eastern Empire from Jerusalem, yes, to Illyricum, the Eastern Roman Empire, I now have my sights on the Western Empire. I want to go, I'm not going to build on another man's foundation, I want to get to the Western Empire, I want to get to Rome so that I can use Rome as a launching pad to get to the West as far as Spain where I can proclaim the Lord Jesus where he has never, ever been proclaimed. That is his strategy. Having given that twofold description, the success of his ministry, the strategy behind his ministry, he goes on to offer what? Three requests for prayer. And he asks them, uh, rather, he, he shares three plans which become his request for prayer. And he says, look, I've got this threefold plan that I want you to pray about, pray for, give some attention to. And my plan is basically this, that uh, having wrapped up my ministry here, first of all, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem because I have been collecting an offering among the churches in Achaia and Macedonia. And I'm going to take that offering back to Jerusalem, and that offering, that financial gift will meet the needs of the poor in the church in Jerusalem. So he wants to go to Jerusalem to assist the poor. And then he says, look, my second plan is to having visited Jerusalem, I want to get to Rome. And I want to visit Rome, a place I've never been, a church I've never ministered among, uh, for that very reason. I want to minister. I want to serve the people of God. 
And having done that, having received some refreshing encouragement from the church at Rome, my third plan is this, I want to get to Spain. And so I want to go to Jerusalem to assist the poor. I want to get to Rome to serve the church. And then I want to go to Spain to evangelize the lost. This is his threefold plan. Then having given this threefold plan, we finally arrive at our text where he now asks them, appeals to them to pray for him in accordance with that prayer. There you have it. You're up to speed. Are you ready now for the text? Here we go, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers. Pause there. It should ring a bell. That ought to sound familiar. Chapter 12, verse 1. It is exactly the same phrase in the Greek. Exactly. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 12, verse 1, he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you offer up your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now he's saying something slightly different. I appeal to you, brothers. I beg you, brothers. I plead with you, brothers. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That, here are his specific requests. There are three. That, number one, I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And that, here comes number two, my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that, here comes number three, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Did you hear the three requests? You got number one, verse 31, that I may be del delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He is persona non grata in Judea. He is public enemy number one in Jerusalem. Uh, they've heard of what this man Paul has been up to and the confusion he has been causing from their vantage point, their estimation, the confusion he has caused among the Jews of the dispersion throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, they're very concerned about what he's preaching, this gospel, this gospel focused upon the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, a usurper, a fake, a fraud, as far as they're concerned. And even more alarming is this. They're concerned by his assistance that Jewish ethnicity is of no relevance at all. That in the eyes of God, we're all equal. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile when it comes to the church, the people of God. There is no advantage in simply being an ethnic Jew. Well, that is over the top as far as these Jews are concerned. And Paul is an enemy, and he is the object of their spite, animosity. And he knows, look, when I stick my head in Jerusalem, there are going to be fireworks. This place is going to go off. It's going to be unbelievable. And I want you, I'm heading there. I'm taking this offering. I'm determined that's what I'm supposed to do. Please, strive with me in your prayers that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Second request is this, still picking it up in the same verse, that my service for Jerusalem, this offering that I've collected, this money that I've got, that it may be acceptable to the saints. See, I don't know how much the well has been poisoned. The church in Jerusalem, for all I know, they've been listening to my enemies. They've been listening to these Judaizers. They've been listening to these opponents of the gospel. And again, maybe the well has been poisoned. And as far as the church is concerned, I'm not welcome there. 
And all of a sudden, here I come waltzing into the city with this offering from Gentile churches. What are they going to make of that? They might tell me to keep on walking and head down the road. And so strive with me, brothers, in your prayers to God on my behalf. That, this service of mine for Jerusalem, for the saints at Jerusalem, may be acceptable to the saints. And now his third request. Notice it is a purpose clause. It's a little different. Right? First request, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that, in other words, I want the first two prayer requests to be fulfilled, that uh, my plans might come to fruition by God's will, of course, verse 32, uh, that I may come to you, the church at Rome, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Here's my question. Did God answer his prayers? Somebody say yes. He, God answered his prayers. You pick up the narrative in the book of Acts. Start really, I guess, in chapter 21 when Paul returns to Jerusalem. Luke records it for us. And you read from chapter 1 right through to the end of the book of Acts and we discover that Paul, God answered and honored this threefold request. Firstly, God did deliver Paul from those unbelievers, enemies, opponents of the gospel in Judea. That upon arriving in Jerusalem, all was well for a few days. But on one particular day, he's in the temple worshiping, kind of minding his own business. Some Jews from Asia who knew him, recognized him, and that was it absolute chaos. They began to cry out, this is the man, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. They literally, folks, they are about to tear him limb from limb. The Roman tribune, he intervenes and he arrests Paul. Well, that sets off years of imprisonment uh, and all sorts of intrigue and all sorts of plots to murder Paul. And yet through it all, God delivers the Apostle Paul. His second request was what? That upon arriving in Jerusalem, his service might be acceptable to the saints. Was it acceptable? Yes, it was. God made it acceptable to the saints. That the church, upon seeing the Apostle Paul enter the city, we read the following. Luke records it. The brothers received us gladly. Oh, they were thrilled. They could barely contain themselves. When here we were, this little missionary crew, missionary band, waltzed into the city of Jerusalem. They were filled with joy when they caught their first glimpse of us. Oh, what an answer to prayer. Their ministry, their persons accepted by the church at Jerusalem. And what about that third request? You got it there in verse 32. That by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Did Paul make it to Rome? <coughs> Not the way he planned, right? But he did make it to Rome. You remember that long, drawn-out trial in Judea, and Paul is convinced he's not going to get a fair trial, and he's convinced that, uh, 
all these, this scheming that's going on. They're, they're going to try to take his life. And so as a Roman citizen, what does he finally do? I appeal to Caesar. And off he is sent in chains to Rome. Acts 28, what do we read? As he approaches Rome, we discover the following. Again, Luke recording this. When they heard about us, so this church, these people to whom he has written this epistle, right? When they heard about us, they came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us on seeing them. Paul thanked God and took courage. Now, some of us stood on the Appian Way a couple of years ago. Still there, large portions of it in Italy. It's quite remarkable, really. Uh, this road built before the time of Christ and goes all the way from the center of the city of Rome to the eastern shore, and it was the major thoroughfare. And all roads that lead to Rome eventually hit the Appian Way at some point. And so we even have geographically identified four as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns. These were places that people would stop for the night on that journey, uh, maybe 30, 40 miles southeast of the city of Rome. And so when the saints heard that Paul was coming, out they went en masse to greet him and to receive him. And Paul, who was under the guard of a centurion, Paul, who was in chains, Paul, who has been in prison for some time now, again, hear how Luke records it on seeing them. He thanked God and took courage. God answered Paul's threefold prayer request. Now, as we dive into these verses, you've got all that. You've got the context. There's the explanation. You see exactly what's going on. You understand his requests. What I want to do is make four observations concerning prayer that we can glean from the Apostle Paul's example and that of the church at Rome. Four, I, I pray, encouraging words. Yes, maybe challenging on some measure, but encouraging words to turn us into men and women of prayer. Four observations. Here we go. Observation number one, why we pray. Why we pray. I'm thinking here in terms of motive uh, or if you like, incentive. We actually get two motives in verse 30, again from the start. I appeal to you, brothers, here it is, motive number one or incentive number one, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and here's incentive number two, by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers. And so again, think of chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you. I plead with you. I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you would be reasonable, that you would offer up your lives as living sacrifices. If you really understand the mercies of God, if you really understand what it means, not, not, not only that the Lord Jesus offered up himself as a sacrifice upon Calvary's cross to atone for your sin. That you understand not only what it means that the Spirit of God in a moment of time converted you, effectual calling, gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. That you understand that all of this, the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit, is actually a manifestation of God's special love for you, a love he set upon you before the foundation of the world world, then let's be logical and offer up our lives as living sacrifices. 
holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable worship. He's making the same kind of argument here. I appeal to you, brothers, please be sensible. And he makes this twofold appeal, twofold incentive to pray. Number one, by our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to be a throwaway phrase. It most certainly isn't. Notice, firstly, Lord Jesus Christ. You go into the surrounding verses, and more often than not, he speaks of Christ, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. But here he pulls out all the stops. Lord Jesus Christ. What's his point? He's the king. Notice, secondly, he does not say the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? Our, mine, our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you to pray. Here's an incentive. Incentive number one from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. What more of a motive do we need to pray than that? Than understanding that the Lord Jesus has been installed in Zion as king. That he rules and reigns over all things. He governs the snowflake and the supernova and absolutely everything in between. That there is nothing that transpires under heaven among men that it does not transpire in accordance with the governance of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray, we are going before the King. We are going before the Lord. We are entering the presence of the one who controls all things. You see how this significant this is for his first request? Have you forgotten already? What's his first request? That God would deliver him from the unbelievers in Judea. They're numerous. They're ravenous. They're powerful. They're influential. What hope does this lonely, short, bald guy named Paul have when it comes to confronting this en masse, these opponents to the gospel? He is it's very Daniel-esque. He is walking into the lion's den. Now, I want you to pray for me. Oh, and I appeal to you to pray for me. By our Lord Jesus Christ, my opponents will not be able to lift one finger against me, apart from the sovereign will of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to go to the king. I want you to go to the one who controls all things, had numbers the hairs on my head, numbers my days, and I want you to strive in your prayers on my behalf. The second incentive is what? Oh, by the love of the Spirit. Oh, it's very reminiscent, isn't it, of Romans chapter 5. You go back there. Is it verse 5, verse 6? Verse 5, I'm pretty sure. Paul tells us what? That the love of God has been poured out in our hearts as Christians. He's speaking to believers. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so the spirit of truth, yes, the spirit of grace, yes. 
The spirit of love now dwells in us. Do you see how relevant that is to his second request? What does he want to happen once he arrives at Jerusalem? Not merely that God would deliver him from his enemies. There's the first incentive, our Lord Jesus Christ. But that God would make his service, Paul's service, acceptable to the saints at Jerusalem. He wants the spirit of love to work in them that their love for him might be kindled to such a degree that he will come. He will find, oh, such refreshment in their company, such mutual edification. And so there you have it, two incentives to pray, to be earnest in prayer. Number one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the love of the Spirit. Let me sum it all up as follows. Why we pray, here it is. The merciful God has a ruling Son and a loving Spirit. We need no other incentive to get on our knees before the throne of grace than that. Here's a second observation I want to make, how we pray. Still in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Here it is, how we pray, what it looks like to strive. Oh, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Striving, it implies what? It's not going to come easy. Striving entails effort. Uh, striving entails struggle. Oh, the cares of the world mitigate against prayer. The wiles of the devil dampen the desire to, prayer, to pray. The, the, the lusts of the flesh, what do they do? They curb, they completely dampen any desire we might have to pray. Oh, the cares of the world, the wiles, the schemes of the devil, and the lusts of the flesh. You put on top of that what? Just our natural dislike of prayer. Our natural dislike of hard work. A.W. Tozer years ago penned the following words. We must face the fact, we must face this, that many today are notoriously careless in their living. Is it possible, even among us here at Grace Community Church, that we are notoriously careless, notoriously undisciplined? We think it should just be all, just this you know, summer day, breeze in our back, just sort of fly through life, happy, clappy, no problems, nothing going on. No, 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 no. Oh, the call to struggle, the call to strive, understanding that when we engage in prayer, we are coming before the throne of the living God and understanding, as it was said so many years ago, an old Puritan, you know, folks, the devil fears nothing but prayer. You can do all the ministry you want to do. He'll be fine with that. I can preach all the sermons I want to preach. He'll have no problem with that. We can be as busy from one end of the globe to the other. Who cares? What the devil fears is prayer above all else. A praying people who beseech, yes, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, the Father to accomplish His good will among His people. 
I was reminded, this whole, this whole idea of striving, you know, I think part of the reason, too, we don't strive is because we don't sense the burden, right? Striving, our effort, the effort we, we give to something, I believe, is directly proportionate to our, our how, how deeply we perceive our need or our burden. I was reminded of this recently. I was reading a novel, and perhaps you've read it. I won't give it away, but I was reading this novel, and it partake, takes place in the Second World War. And the protagonist, the main, the main player in this novel is a young girl, and she goes blind, six or seven years of age. And uh, there she is. She's alone with her father. Her, her mother has already passed away. Her mother is gone, and her father, concerned for her, how she's going to live in, uh, in, uh, and just survive in life, he builds a model of the entire city in which she lives, a model with lampposts, windows, drains, everything. I don't know how long it took him, but you can imagine. Here it is to scale this model of the city where she lives. And then she spends, I don't know, months, years memorizing the model by running her hands over it, counting everything, familiarizing herself with the city so that when she steps out the front door, she's able to count the drains and know which street she's at. She's able to knock on the lampposts and know exactly where she is. Every inclination, every doorfront, every detail. And she memorized and memorized this. Why? Oh, the need that consumed her. If she is to survive, if she is to get anywhere. How she gave herself to memorizing the outlay of this city. You see, I, 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 the energy we give to something. Let me state it again. It's obvious, isn't it? The energy we give to things is directly related to, directly proportionate to our sense of need. When we fail to give ourselves to prayer, work it through, what does it declare? We don't sense our need. We aren't burdened as we ought. Oh, what a powerful reminder for us. You know, that the phone goes at two in the morning and the news is bad, what's the first thing we do? We're on our knees and we are praying. The test results come back and they're bad. What's the first thing we do? We're on our knees and we're praying. But other than that, we're just kind of what? Oh, I got this. I can handle it. My friend, you got nothing and I've got nothing. We don't move. We do nothing profitable under the sun. We don't render any service to God. There is absolutely nothing we can do in the flesh that is profitable in God's sight, meaningful in God's sight. We are completely dependent from sun up, sun down, 24-7, completely dependent upon the Spirit of God to be working through us. Oh, that He would heighten in us our awareness of this burden that our striving might be commensurate. I mean, Martin Luther of Reformation fame, he, uh, he was uh, discussing this one day with his barber. It's a true story of all people. We know it's true because uh, his barber raised these kinds of issues with him. And Luther wrote a 40-page answer. Quite something. Just personal letter to his barber who was wrestling with some of these things. And uh, so Luther put pen to paper and uh, sent this letter to him. And he said to the following... It is a good thing to let prayer be the first business in the morning and the last in the evening. Oh, guard yourself against such false and deceitful thoughts that keep whispering, eh, wait a little while. In an hour or so, I will pray. I must first finish this or do that. 
Oh, thinking such thoughts, we get away from prayer into other things that will hold us and involve us until the prayer of the day comes to nothing. <coughs> Excuse me while I take some water. If you notice, I'm dealing with a cold. There's Luther's advice to his barber. Oh, the need for discipline. The need for setting aside time. The need for morning, evening prayers. The example for us, the admonition for us. As we hear it from Paul himself, strive together with me in your prayers. <coughs> what is that going to look like? Here's where I don't want to leave us with two black eyes. Here's where I don't want to give you the impression, well, I need to walk out of this place and spend half the night in prayer. I need to walk out of this place and become some kind of super prayer warrior. No, it's the small things. It's the simple things. It is simply setting aside. It is simply, again, out of our acknowledgement of our need, acknowledging, recognizing our need to strive, to give time to this, to struggle with this, to discipline ourselves for this. Morning, evening prayers, what a great time to begin. How we pray, we do so striving. Third observation I want to make is this, what we pray. And Trisha's going to help me at this point. She does know that. We talked beforehand. She's going to bring up a slide. Is it there? There we go. How we are to pray. Before we get to the slides, Trisha's going to bring up behind me here on the screen. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 32. So that, and so do you remember his first request? That he may be delivered, God would deliver him from the unbelievers, opponents in Judea. Remember his second request? That my service for Jerusalem may be made acceptable to the saints. There's a purpose clause now leading to a third request. So that by, note the phrase, God's will. Oh, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. This is what Paul desires. This is what Paul wants above all else. God's will to be done. Thomas Manton, describing prayer, stated the following. Prayer is the offering up of our desires to God in the name of Christ for such things as are agreeable to his will. That is prayer. Hear it again. We offer up our desires to God in the name of Christ through Christ's mediation for such things as are agreeable to his will. It was Calvin who said, he or she who prays beyond the book, that is God's word, God's will, enters into territory we dare not go. God has given us his will in his word. We turn his will as we find it in his promises and in his commands into prayers. And yes, we have our desires. We bring those desires before God. We make those desires known to God. But ultimately, we always pray what? By His will. And so Paul offers up these three requests. This is what he wants. This is what he's planning. And yet he, all, he sets it all before the throne of God. And he wisely acknowledges that of supreme importance is what? That God's will is, is done. I did something interesting this past week. Besides attending a conference, I did something else interesting. 
I, I was reflecting back on chapters 12 through 15. And yeah, okay, I was taking note of Paul's prayer requests here. But I was trying to personalize and thinking, you know, if I were writing a letter to Grace Community Church, uh, what would I say? And so just, just imagine for a moment, work with me. Verse 30, here I am, I'm writing this letter to us, and it's like, I appeal to you. So those of us who are Christians, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, it's inclusive. Okay, twofold appeal, two incentives, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me, all of us here at Grace Community Church, in our prayers to God for what? For what? As I reflected on chapters 12 through 15 and what we've seen in Romans, I came up with 14 requests. It's what I want to share with you now, and Trisha's going to help me out here. She's going to bring them up as I read them off, one after the other. Here's what I promised to do. I'll, I'll try to post them on our GCC Facebook page later. So if you can't write them down now, just relax. Stop giving me the death stare. They'll be up there later, and you can just write them down at your own leisurely pace. But just as I think of us, Grace Community Church, striving in prayer, you know, what I really want to do is really just put it before us to make these 14, yes, the focus of our prayer as we pray as individuals, as we lead our families in prayer, our care group leaders, I want to encourage you to take these and make sure you're giving some time to these in the context of care group, our men's, women's studies, as you're meeting twos and threes, sixes and sevens, whatever. But that for the remainder of the year, right, as we make our way through 2016, that we would go back to this, this, this idea of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's incentive number one. The love of the Spirit of God. Our calling now in terms of our morning, evening prayers to be bringing these 14 before God. So here's number one. You see it behind me now that God blesses the preaching and teaching of his word. There you have it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. We're going nowhere as a church if God does not bless his word to us. Related to it, still under number one, related to it, that he causes our teachers to grow in devotion to his word. Our teachers, not just me standing here, but our Sunday school teachers from the youngest right up to the oldest, and teaching as it takes place in so many different contexts here, that, that our teachers, anyone who dares to minister the Word of God, might be growing in devotion to that Word related to it, that God creates in all of us an insatiable appetite for His Word. That's my prayer number one for Grace Community Church. It includes so much, so much we could expand on here. But you give me this, you know, he might challenge me, and there's nothing else really matters. If God gives us this, anything else, he can come and go. If he gives us an insatiable appetite for his word, keeps us faithful to his word, and blesses us and speaks to us through his word, we'll be all right. Number two, Trisha. How's she doing? Is it up there? There we go. That God guards us from any scandal that would sully our witness, tarnish our witness. Sadly, reminded of again this past week, another up-and-coming young evangelical leader, huge church, fallen. And it just seems to be one after another, domino effect. Not just our leadership, our membership here at Grace Community Church, that he would guard us and protect us from doing anything scandalous that would completely blacken our witness, our testimony here in Glen Rose and beyond. That he guards us from scandal that would sully our witness. Burden us with this. Related to it, that he keeps us from error, right? Protects us from error. Idolatry. Apathy and worldliness keeps us from it, and if some of us have already fallen in it, that he might lead us to repentance. Repent of it and forsake it. 
Number three, Tricia. Aren't you glad you're going to see these later on Facebook? See, Facebook does have some use. Number three, that God cultivates discipleship among us to such a degree that it becomes normal and natural. In other words, it isn't top down, it's bottom up. People just do it because they want to do it. Oh, how wonderful that would be to see. We are already seeing it in many ways that we would see it even more, normal and natural, that fathers wouldn't be looking around for someone to disciple their sons, but they themselves would actually do it. Mothers would actually disciple their daughters. Friends discipling friends, those who've been believers for quite some time, discipling those who've been believers for a relatively short period of time. Again, this climate, this culture of discipleship that is normal and natural. You're getting these? Number four. I didn't write these all in one setting. It was over the whole week and kind of modified them. Oh, you want to hear something terrible? I modified them, was working on this, writing it out by hand. I left my entire sermon on the plane. You know, in God's providence, I hope someone picked that up and read it and it did them some good. A Friday morning, I was here scrambling, trying to bring it all back. But these are ones I, I, I've written over the whole week. And here they are. Number four, that God leads us to engage a fallen world while remaining distinct from it. That's a good one. They're all good, but that one I think is very timely for us. Engage a fallen world while remaining distinct from it. That our love for one another would cause the world to wonder. Oh, how wonderful that would be. And that our pursuit of holiness would cause the world to feel very uncomfortable. I think those are very important. Number five, Tricia, please. That God enables us to share the gospel boldly, regularly, and faithfully. That, we, that we, we really get over any concern that we might look like a fool for proclaiming Christ. Look like a fool, brother. Look like a fool, sister. Who cares? Proclaim the gospel. And live it out before people's eyes and use every opportunity to make the good news known. Boldly, regularly, and faithfully related to this, that God's mercy stirs in us such eagerness and earnestness and fearlessness and willingness to proclaim the good news of salvation. Number six, that God equips us to do good in our various callings. And they are various, multitude of callings. That he turns us here at Grace Community Church into the best husbands, the best fathers, the best wives, the best mothers, workers, bosses, neighbors, friends, and citizens. That he compels us to live as an act of worship. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Meaning what? That the death of self, my pride, is I, I mortify my pride, mortify self in the interest of Christ-likeness. Oh, doing good in our callings. Number seven, that God turns our homes into places of gospel-centeredness. And that this is evident in the relationship between husband and wife and evident in the relationship between parent and child. Gospel-centeredness. Gospel-centeredness equals humility, equals poverty of spirit. Number eight, unless I've lost track somewhere. Does that sound right? Number eight. That God strengthens us to love our enemies, even those who persecute us. Related to this, that God shows us who the real threat is. God shows us who the real threat is. The most dangerous threat we face today as Christians is not the sin in this world out there. 
It is the sin in our own hearts. Oh, that we would get that. Really get that. My sin is my greatest enemy. Not anything out there, but my sin, my self-centeredness. And that God would strengthen us to mortify our self-love and enable us to love those out there. Number nine, that God causes our hope of glory to outweigh our hope for political change. I'll be praying that one for you. Pray that one for me. God causes our hope of glory to outweigh our hope for political change, that he convinces us that the greatest need is not to take back America, it is to take back the church. That is our greatest need, folks. Oh, I pray we see that. It is to say that our greatest need is not for America to repent. It is for the church to repent. It is for Grace Community Church to repent. That is our greatest, most pressing need in our day. Number 10, that God maintains our unity at Grace Community Church, that he stirs in us a love for people who share nothing in common with us except their love of Christ. That's a good one. I think that's a great one. That we would, we would actually be really different people. Nothing in common. Why would we ever spend time together? Why would you spend time with me? Why would I spend time with you? The only thing that brings us together is our common love for Christ. Adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number 12. Trisha, you're doing wonderful. That God calls some of us to proclaim Christ where he has not yet been proclaimed. That he nurtures in us a zeal for the spread of his glory among the nations. Mums and dads, I said a word to you a couple weeks ago, didn't I? Some of you were hoping I wouldn't harp on that too much. Here I go again. That he really would call some out of our number. And that uh, years from now, they will be writing to us from far off places we can barely spell, let alone know where they are. Number 13, that God sustains us in the darkest nights, that he shows us that we only reach the heights of blessedness through the valleys of despair. The pathway to glory is suffering. He shows us that temporal suffering is not worth comparing to future glory. And my last one, number 14, that God convinces us to value everything, hold everything, esteem everything according to his eternal glory, not our earthly happiness. There you go. There's the challenge. Will you strive with me in your prayers for Grace Community Church as individuals, as families, in our care groups when we are together to keep those 14 before us and the incentives pray by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, that God might be well pleased to hear these prayers and work in wonderful ways in our midst. Fourth observation, finally, quickly, as we wrap it up, here it is, to whom we pray. So why we pray, you got it out of verse 30, the two incentives. How we pray, striving, you got that as well out of verse 30. What we pray, by God's will, and I've given you 14 specific requests, which I think are particularly relevant to us as a church. And now to whom we pray, wrapping it up, verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Here's a study. I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to leave it with you. Do it on your own. Same chapter. Go back to the fourth verse. 
fifth verse, pardon me. Chapter 15, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement. What a wonderful description of our God. He is the God of endurance and encouragement. Now to verse 13. He is the God of hope. That's the second prayer. And now this third prayer, right at the end of chapter 15. So you got these three prayers from Paul, three different, threefold description of God. And now this third one, verse 33. May the God of peace. That's the one to whom we pray. It is a description of God in relation to his people. He is the God of peace in relation to us. Firstly, it is a description of God as our king. He keeps all things in existence. He causes all things to act as they do. And he directs all things to their appointed end. Because he governs all things, because he is my king, he is the God of peace, the God of my peace. Peace because I know nothing escapes his notice. I know nothing catches him by surprise. I know he orchestrates absolutely everything that has transpired, is transpiring, will transpire in life. And therefore, my knowledge of my God, my King, imparts to me a peace that passes understanding. I've used the comparison before, but it was probably a long time ago. It's time again. Here it is, the hurricane. You remember this one? You've got your ocean. You've got your hurricane. And that hurricane just raging above the ocean, stirring up the waters and those enormous waves. You plunge below the surface and just go down a little ways. What effect does the hurricane have on the ocean? Absolutely none. You've got that terrible storm up there and the surface all worked up. But you move down into the depths and it does not touch anything. Oh, there is the peace that passes understanding the believer's life. Yeah, it might be a little bit like a hurricane right now. It might be. But there is a peace that circumstances cannot touch because this peace derives from a God who changes not. A.T. Pearson wrote, the peace of God is that eternal calm which lies far too deep in the praying, trusting soul to be reached by any external disturbances. He is the God of peace because he is our king. But secondly, he is the God of peace because he is our father. So here we are thinking of him not so much as our king, although that never escapes our view. But we are thinking of him here as our father. We are thinking of him here in the light of what Paul declares again back in chapter 5. That having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. And so now it's not so much a peace in the midst of circumstances, but this is a peace with God himself. A God who formerly we were at enmity with. A God who formerly we hated. A God who formerly we were at war but peace has been made by the blood of his cross. 
And having repented of our sin and having believed in the Lord Jesus, we are now at peace with God. What was formerly divided has been brought together. And as we stand upon grace in the sight of God, we are no longer standing on thin ice. Thin ice. Terrible time this time of year in Ontario. Why? Because those ice fishermen are trying to do what? Get out there one last time. And in the newspaper, it happens every year. What happens? They're hauling some snowmobile or pickup truck out of the lake because the ice is what? It's got too thin. It starts to break up. It can't bear the weight. No, as we stand in God's presence, we are not standing on thin ice. No, this thing is like eight feet thick. It's not going anywhere because we don't stand upon our merit. We don't stand upon anything that can change. We stand upon the grace of God. We stand in Christ. And so in Christ, we approach God as our reconciled Father. In Christ, the sinful failings of our best actions aren't scrutinized by a severe judge, but accepted by a loving Father. In Christ, we draw near to God with comfort and confidence. In Christ, we pray to God with boldness. In Christ, we cry out to God as children cry out to their Father. He is the God of peace. I have to just add one more comment. I pray we all know him as such today, right? I'm under no illusion. Somebody in this room probably doesn't. Do you know God Almighty as the God of peace? Have you come to him just laying bare your life, telling him, guess what, my friend, what he already knows and knows it better than you do? You are a rebel at heart and stubborn at heart, and sinful at heart. Have you, come, have you come, though, recognizing his love as poured out at Calvary's cross, as made evident and plain in his Son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us, bearing the penalty for sinners? And if you come to him believing, have you come to him in repentance? Have you come to him claiming God as your God, therefore the God of peace. If not, this is my final word. If not, as a minister of the gospel, this is my command to you, that this day you repent of your sin, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you make peace with God by the cross of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word, and we do praise you for our slowness, our, our slowness to understand, but your willingness to impart understanding. We praise you, yes, that despite our stubbornness of heart, you are more than able to work by your Holy Spirit in breaking our hard hearts. And so we pray that as your word has been announced, proclaimed, explained today, and that you might be well pleased to take it and apply it to the needs of each one gathered here. Uh, above all things, we pray that Christ might be exalted in our midst, that he might be given the preeminence that he deserves. And we seek it from you in his matchless name. Amen.